Hey, welcome back to Intimate Interactions. Let's get back to discussing the ways we share love and intimacy with our fellow humans. Relationships, kink, polyamory, group sex, it's time to unlearn stigma and live our best lives as our best selves. All thanks to my amazing Patreon supporters. Intimate Interactions has no ads but this one. If you want to keep it that way, you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon. You get access to exclusive premium content like all of my coping with jealousy stuff. And hey, if that makes you jealous of my patrons, it sounds like it might be time to sign up. Free resources are available at victorsalmon.com slash resources, and book recommendations are at intimatepodcast.com forward slash books. Also, my Patreon supporters don't have to listen to this ad. Now, let's talk about the episode. My friend Tilly King is a local, genderqueer, femme, bootblack. They describe themselves as someone with mental illness and their perspective on intimate violence, both consensual and non-consensual, is nuanced and interesting. I discuss the intersections of service, BDSM, and trauma with them, and we try and make it accessible for new folks by discussing the differences between top and bottom and dom and sub roles, and how those things are different and similar. We also try and dig into terms like feral, flagging, mommy, and many more. We talk about public displays of service and what being vulnerable in public looks like and can feel like. I hope you enjoy listening to our discussion as much as I enjoyed having it. One of the reasons I like tea so much is because tea leaves are so different, tea to tea. Mm-hmm. If, you're wel- if you want, I'd invite you to try and smell these, this white tea. It's very delicate. Yeah, it like yeah. almost doesn't smell the way like I tend to think of tea smelling. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome, Intimates. I'm sitting with Tilly. Tilly, did you want to introduce yourself? Because I did such a great job in the pre-interview of figuring out how to introduce you. (laughs) Sure. My name is Tilly King. I have been practicing BDSM for over 20 years of my life. I have been chronically ill for about the same amount of time, Um, mentally ill since, as far as we can tell, my mid to early teens. Mm -hmm. Um, I boot black currently. I have coordinated workshops. I also present workshops on what I sometimes call BDSM and feelings. So looking at a lot of kind of the more personal dynamics that go into BDSM, especially focusing on bottoming. Um, In my vanilla life, I am an administrator at a nonprofit, and I also host small-scale craft nights as well as twice a year I do a plus size clothing swap that's awesome sorry I'm just making some notes here that's okay great that was an awesome intro Um, do you want to talk a little bit about how you identify or what's important to you about how you identify sure I've I realized I forgot all of that Um, that's okay I am sometimes it's not important sometimes it's not important I, I think when we're looking at some of these topics it's good to figure out where your identity intersects with other people's identities Mm -hmm. and where also there can be gaps in understanding potentially. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm white, I'm fat, I'm femme, I'm kind of genderqueer, and I have some questions about like, I'm currently exploring that space a lot, Uh, but cis female, I... um, I think the other things, kinky, uh, non-monogamous for, again, about 20 years. I'm, I just turned 40, so it's interesting 
to kind of be looking at this next stage of my life, which is a very interesting thing. Um, I'm a switch. I also, I'm very anti-binary, right? Like a lot of the cat categories that we slot people into, I'm, I'm kind of like, but what? I understand why labels are important. At the same time, why do we hold them so tightly? Yeah. yeah. I totally couldn't agree more. I personally am very much that kind of human myself in that I'm currently trying to answer some complicated questions about like, how do I feel about gender? I certainly feel like I like painting my nails and doing my <laughs> lips. Although at the end of the night, I hate having to use makeup remover. <laughs> like, what the heck is that noise? <laughs> I, I recently went out and femmed myself up and went with a friend to a bar, which I normally don't do. And then at the end of the night, I was like, I hadn't brought makeup remover with me. We were traveling. So I was using like hotel lotion. And I was like, why? Why is there so much goo on me? So much goo and glitter. I have, I have definitely used hotel moisturizer before to try and get like lipstick off. Yeah. And I'm a really big fan of the like matte finish, stays put, doesn't go anywhere so that I can eat and drink stuff. I mean, eating is always kind of a challenge with lipstick, but mm -hmm. like drinking stuff, if I've got like a really good like matte finish lipstick, it's not going anywhere. And yeah. kissing and things like that. And you don't just, you don't make a mess on people or like get your makeup. Your makeup doesn't become their problem. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> but yes. then when you're trying to scrub <laughs> it off with hotel moisturizer, it's like, this is not micellar water. No, it's not. No. Although coconut oil is amazing. Oh, yeah. Like when I'm at home, I basically smear coconut oil all over my face and then wipe everything off with like an old rag. Awesome. This is literally my beauty routine. <laughs> That's great. Yep. All right. Um, let's start talking about etiquette and protocol. Okay. I'm so first you want to talk about what boot blacking is for the poor souls who don't know what boot blacking is. Oh my goodness. So boot blacking, I think of it often when your BDSM or leather hobby develops another hobby. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's basically care for boots or shoes, leather garments or items. Mm -hmm. And so people who do this are often called boot blacks. At many scenes or bars, you'll find someone with a stand so that someone can come and sit and get their items done when it's on them. Not all, not everyone prefers to get the items done when it's on their body, but that mm -hmm. does seem to be the more popular way to do it. And at the same time, we do serve a bit of, you know, kind of barber hairdresser function where people can talk to us and there's not a pressure to necessarily be sexual or be on your game. Um, we can help people feel more confident. Like when all your gear is done and shined up and supple against your body, you tend to be a, a bit more confident and sexy. So mm -hmm. there's also the, the feeling of watching that transformation happen is really magical. I'm happy you used the word transformation because as you were talking, I was thinking that sounds very transformative. Yeah, so boot black, boot blacking is definitely one of the functions we do besides literal preservation and restoration of people's leather gear because even though leather is super durable, it does need a certain degree of care. Mm -hmm. We also do a little bit of caring for the individuals within the community. Caring for the individuals within the community. So this is where being a boot black kind of transcends just caring for the item. Mm -hmm. and becomes more about that 
not even necessarily hairdresser, but that sort of community function. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely the the capacity and possibility to ha- share an intimate moment of mm-hmm. care mm-hmm. with an individual that maybe you have a relationship and maybe you don't have a relationship with these people and to support them just feeling a, either a little or a lot more better about themselves mm-hmm. in that evening. Yeah, so does that tie into the feeling of wearing something that's been cared about by someone else? Is it is it about caring about people by caring about their things? I For me, definitely. I definitely see that the leather objects, like, they do hold a certain amount of power and sexiness and potential within themselves. But at the end of it, you are really using the item to kind of mediate this relationship with the person, mm-hmm. right? It's like, I'm quote unquote doing your boots, but what I might be doing is showing care or respect or um, concern or mm-hmm. protectiveness, mm-hmm. or I might be demonstrating like my belief in your sexual potential. Totally. Through this object. That's really awesome. I love having conversations about service because I find service so fascinating and it's something that service people know about. But as soon as you leave like the world of other service humans, it's interesting how people will give you answers like, oh, I've never thought about that. Or <laughs> some people will. What's really interesting is um, my personal life intersects with the AA and NA communities a little bit. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so there's actually a strong ethos of service within the Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous communities. And so it's, it's actually a little bit easier to talk with those people about service, like what service does for you personally, what service does for other people personally, Mm -hmm. what service does for communities. Um, and I'm, I'm very like service is one of those things that it's like an onion and you keep peeling it back. And right now I'm developing a theory about how service is a distinct and separate orientation from the ideas of top and bottom and dominant and submissive, um, which I could go on and on about, but I haven't written that workshop yet. I'm still working on the theory. I mean, that sounds really fascinating because to me, I feel like and, and I, I hate to use love languages, but sometimes they're so convenient. Mm-hmm. Um, I hate to use them because of their origins, but uh, let's just let's just go with it for now. Service is its own unique separate love language. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed that independent of topping and bottoming or doming and subbing, I say or not because they're similar um, or the same, but because they are distinctly different. Mm-hmm. Do, we, do we need to go into that? Mm, you know, let's really briefly go into that. Do you want to yeah. give us a really brief description of the difference between top, bottom and dom, sub? So how people often talk about the roles of top, bottom, and dom, sub, and, and this, is, this is such a thumbnail description. So if you're interested <laughs> in any of these, I fully encourage you to go out, do a bunch of research, have a bunch of conversations about these topics. So top, when we're talking about BDSM or even sex, Top is often viewed as the the doer, the person who is actively performing an action. 
and bottom is often viewed as kind of the dewy, the per the receptive partner, the person the action is being done to. And I'm, I'm deliberately being super vague because you can insert any activity into this dynamic and, and right. break it down there. And some people are switches, which means that they can do either or depending on their mood or the partner or the day or maybe they were the top five minutes ago and now they're the bottom. Or they could potentially do both at the same time by bottoming to one person while they're topping another, which is complicated and fun. It's true. Complicated and fun. It's a, it's a balancing act. Dominant and submissive or dom-sub often refers to the dominant is also often the person who has a certain amount of control within a situation where the submissive is someone who willingly relinquishes control. And this can be people often talk about the ideal of 24 seven. So like in your entire relationship with this person all the time, someone has control and someone has less control. And some for, I think more frequently it's, during certain delineated times, segments of times, times or spaces yeah. yeah times or spaces that someone has control and the other person is relinquished control there are also switches in dominance and submission um it can get really complicated for example right i often say that dominance is a service i provide totally get it yeah but how can we explain that to folks who don't get it so i i sometimes let's go back to the top bottom dom sub things so mm -hmm. It's, it's easy for folks to understand when a dominant is topping or when a, bot, when a sub is bottoming. Because if a person who enjoys power exchange is surrendering some of their power to a person within a negotiated consensual framework, so they've talked about what their power exchange is going to look like, now they're doing the power exchange, it makes a lot of sense for people who are new to this lifestyle to say, oh, cool, so the dominant is flogging the submissive or is spanking the submissive. That means the dominant is the active partner. The dominant, not that submitting isn't dominant or isn't active or that receiving isn't active, but is the, is the, the subject of the action. They're, mm. they're the individual that is doing the thing. It is altogether possible, however, to reverse that and say, I really want to bottom because I get really endorphin high when I receive this kind of sensation. Hey, submissive of mine, would you be willing to provide this sensation? So in this case, this could look like a submissive um, beating up their dominant because their dominant just really wants to have that release or any of the other myriad reasons people do BDSM. So there are definitely submissive tops. Um, an easier one to understand might be if a dominant wants a submissive to give them a massage and they get a pleasurable massage or a sadistic massage or a really, um, to be clear for folks that are newer to this stuff, um, that would be like a really hard massage that hurts a lot. So in the case of the dominant, it would be a masochistic massage they're receiving. Mm -hmm. So you can see very quickly how complicated top and bottom intersects with dom and sub. So when we start talking about service and what that means, service can mean a lot of things. And I think traditionally it's been boxed into the submissive top area. It can it can definitely fall into other areas as well, though I think. Oh yeah, there's this there's this very um, robust and well played out stereotype that service is something submissives do, or that bottoms occasionally engage in. Mm -hmm. 
And I am right now interested in speaking to people who identify as tops or dominants who also provide service. I definitely identify that way. So Excellent. you are in the right place. I, <laughs> <laughs> you, you and I might have to have a research conversation we later. We might need to have a research conversation. And it's, it's so easy when you're a service-minded human. We'll get into burnout later. Fact, <laughs> I'll, just, I'll, just, yes. I'll just make a note here to talk about burnout. But we, it's so easy need, to overextend yourself. We need to talk about burnout very badly for, for the sake of everyone and ourselves. I also, in the spirit of talking about burnout, wanted to mention as a side note, this this ideal that gets talked about of 24-7 power exchange doesn't have to be your ideal. It can be someone else's ideal. I think it's really important we talk about what our own desires are in relationships. And it's not a slider with MS or 24-7 power exchange on one end and then perfectly neutral, no power exchange, egalitarian on the other. It's, it's very much like a wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey thing. Yes. Like, I, I realize that my ideal is that I will find someone who has the desire that our relationship is based on the idea that they have a little bit of control or power over me, mm -hmm. and I agree to this, and even if I'm not enjoying it at the minute moment, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, for kind of the long-purpose goal of my improvement, or mm -hmm. feeling held and con confined in a certain way that I agree to this situation, except I don't want to be micromanaged. Right. Like, I'm, I hate being micromanaged, and I don't want a micromanager dom. I want someone who's like, cool, I know that you floss your teeth every day. I don't need to check in on you. I know that you always take your meds. I don't, I'm not going to check in on you. Um, but I do need to check in with you with this thing that you have a lot of trouble with mm -hmm. and that you haven't developed, like inner boundaries around like I that's what I want and I I kind of have something that looks like it's developing towards that in my life and exciting. I find it yeah it's exciting and it's very satisfactory that like yeah we don't talk every day because this person knows that I take my meds and floss my teeth it's cool mm -hmm. but when we talk about like time management is the specific thing we're working on right now when I come up to a, a problem where I'm like I actually can't decide what's best for me right now because of all the things in my head, mm -hmm. I have someone to talk to about that. So, totally. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really neat to talk about the intersection of mental wellness and BDSM. Mm. I think there's a misperception in the in the world at large that BDSM is related to mental illness, and I don't think that's the case. But I think for those folks that deal with their state of mental wellness or mental illness, depending on how we frame it. Um, speaking as a person with anxiety and depression, like mm. I would also identify as someone who struggles with mental illness. I think it's it's really neat to talk about what that looks like when everything in your life has clearer boundaries than it did before BDSM. When you get to talk about roles and responsibilities and it's just that little bit of structure that you might have wanted or needed. Yeah, and I think that's really important. So full disclosure, I have bipolar disorder type 1 rapid cycling, which means basically I have a clinical diagnosis of too many feelings. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and my baseline without medication is hypomanic. So basically, like, I'd say 75% of the time, I am tuned up. 
and that's just my normal. Is that hypermanic? Hypo. Hypomanic. So that is not quite fully manic. So it's not oh, like okay. I believe I'm ultimately untouchable and I'm not sleeping and I'm right. not super agitated. That's like manic manic. Got I'm you. hypomanic. So it's just like... Like almost subclinical, but all the time. But all the time. Yes. Just <laughs> enough to be problematic where I often like feel like I have a lot of capacity. So I'll make a lot of agreements that I can't ultimately right. follow up to, or I'll make agreements that have me, my resources stretch so thin that I don't have like any emergency capacity. It's, it, it can be very problem. That's how it shows up with me. I also have obsession only OCD. So I have like intrusive thoughts of, of violence, which mm-hmm. um, isn't, it's terribly unpleasant. And I was only diagnosed, so I was diagnosed as bipolar when I was 21, so that's 19 years ago, and I was only diagnosed at, with the OCD diagnosis about two or three years ago, mm-hmm. because when something doesn't manifest behaviorally, it can mm-hmm. be really hard for psychiatrists to figure out what's going on with it. It was interesting. So anyway, when I hit the BDSM scene um, over 20 years ago, at that point, the watchword of uh, like the gold standard of how we do what we do was safe, sane and and consensual. consensual. And I was like, Oh, well I'm, I'm failing like a third of that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And when you think about how common like depression and anxiety is, and again, I, I see no reason why people without more intense mental illnesses, why we shouldn't be allowed to have, full sexual expression of course of everything we wish right so um yeah like i'm pretty crazy there's no reason why i shouldn't be allowed in a dungeon Mm -hmm. and in fact there was a period where doing intense bottoming was actually one of my coping mechanisms for dealing with this hyped up manic state interesting yeah um what did you find the bottoming provided for you basically my internal world was really intense um, as I said, everything was tuned up. So that meant like I could, I would get super irritable, but I'd also feel super good. And that can sometimes be called a mixed state. I'm like, really prone to those. Like everything was turned up to 13 and it was just a little too loud and a little too intense. Yeah. Whereas everybody just lives at level 10 as a max and I'm at 13 all the time. Right. And this is when I was, I chose to be unmedicated for several years. And so having an experience with someone which was intense and connected and really physically intense and allowed me to express express intense emotion. Like I could be really happy. I could be really sad. I could be really struggling. I could be really frustrated because I played with people who weren't looking for a stoic bottom because right. that's not me. Uh, <laughs> find someone else if that's your person, right? Um, so I could experience and express all this intensity that was going on in me all the time. And so that provided an outlook outlet for dealing with a mental illness. Now that I have decided to be medicated, I don't bottom in the same way I used to, which is a little bit of an identity shift for me. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, that feels like what I need to do with my life right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, I'm just processing my own feels about intensity because I think intensity is like a keyword for why I play and why mm-hmm. I do BDSM. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think intense I think intensity is a draw for a lot of people because I feel 
so I have no experience not having a mental illness. I don't know what it's like, but the... <laughs> the I feel like I can't relate to that. Yeah. Other, other people can tell me if this is true or not, but my theory from observing people who don't identify as mentally ill mm-hmm. playing is I think everyone craves a bit of intensity. Mm-hmm. And so BDSM provides like a safe, boundaried way to experience this intensity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again the idea of like boundaries and consent and safety. So basically you're like, I want a super intense experience, but don't mark my face, you know? Yeah. yeah, All of, all of that good stuff. So I think, I think there's a little bit of a human drive for it. Yeah. I think it's interesting how some needs that a lot of kinksters tend to have are just needs that vanilla folks will get met by wakeboarding or water skiing or playing really intense contact sports or video games. Or video games. Yeah. Absolutely. Or contact dancing. Mm, There's yeah. a million different activities that meet, like, connective and intense needs for some folks. And then other folks will be like, oh, contact dancing isn't intense for me. Or or partner or partner dancing isn't connective for me. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's, it's so neat how, like, different activities do different things for different people. Yeah. I'm also starting to dig into this, dig a bit in, in a compassionate way into the relationship between trauma and BDSM. Oof. <laughs> it's it's a heavy topic because a lot of people assume that only people with trauma do BDSM. Right, which is not the case. Which is not true. But some of us who do BDSM, including me, we have some trauma in our background. Sure. And there's this combination of there's agreements and consent. So you've got a little bit more safety yeah. than necessarily you would negotiate for in vanilla sex. And and I see vanilla sex is starting to shift. Yeah. People are having more conversations. I'm so excited. Yeah. It's so good. Um, but we have more agreements. We have more boundaries. Mm-hmm. But also we can engage with some of the things that happened around or with our trauma and we can do it in a way where either we can rewrite the story or for me like one of the lessons i learned as a young tilly was that yeah and we should trigger warning this hi people i'm not going to get detailed but i am talking a bit about trauma um so young tilly learned implicitly so it wasn't a direct lesson it was something i learned through experience that violence is incredibly intimate that when you are in a violent situation with somebody you're really focused on each other basically nothing exists except this transaction um and that's something that i carried into my kink life and it took probably about 10 12 years before i realized that that was part of what i was doing Right. And now I still do it. I just do it very consciously that I'm like, yeah, that I'm like, when I am engaging with violence, either as the doer or the doee with someone, this is creating a bond. This is creating a really intense, intimate moment. Mm -hmm. This is what we're doing. Okay. That's, that's it. So long. I mean, yeah. And it comes back to being intentional. It comes back to negotiation and consent. I think what's really neat is folks that that maybe don't have an experience of violence often make a distinction between harm and hurt where mm. hurt is like, Oh, I'm, I'm physically hurting right now. Whereas harm tends to be more transcending that it has to do mm. with, with non-consensual hurt. And it's kind of an arbitrary distinction in, in language in a broader sense, because 
in English as a whole, there isn't really that distinction, but it's mm. a useful distinction in a BDSM context. So violence has to do with harm, and a lot of folks who practice consensual BDSM wouldn't refer to impact that we do as violent because it's not harm-causing. But I think it's really neat to see how those things can become conflated and how there's not really an issue with building intimacy through quote-unquote violence. Like, it, there's not really an issue, especially if it's intentional, especially if it's consensual. Yeah, and, and something that, again, again, going back to trauma, so if you need to take a break, go ahead and take your break. Um, <laughs> for me, it can actually be scarier and feel more risky yeah. to do, like, soft, slow, in, like, lots of eye contact, lots of soft, soft, soft touching. slow touching. Like, that can feel really scary and risky, and it makes me very anxious. Interesting. Whereas if I'm handled roughly, I'm like, oh, I know what to do. <laughs> yeah, I know where I am on the map. Exactly, right? Like, yeah. I know I know where this takes me. I know what this will do. And and the end result is the same, right? The end goal is the same, is we're looking for intimate connection with someone. Mm -hmm. It's just one road is easier for me than the other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or maybe not easier. Maybe it's more well-traveled for me. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's neat how what's familiar becomes comfortable, even if it at one time it wasn't comfortable at all. No. And I think by association <clears throat> as well, it's like if you're exposed to a certain activity in the context of community and love and support and family, it, it just becomes like this fond pastime, even if that even if that pastime was people beating each other and screaming and you know, whatever context that beating and screaming happened in, whether it was a very consensual one or possibly in some cases, even a non-consensual one. Not that this is in any way saying that's okay or <laughs> desired. It's just interesting how human brains tend to associate things. Yeah. Like I think the book ending of things like negotiation and aftercare can make a huge difference. And and I'm not saying that negotiation and aftercare all has to look the same for the same people, because I think those activities can be wildly different depending on who you are and what, what you're with. Like mm -hmm. I once did aftercare with a person where I walked up, I handed them a hanky I just bought, and I was like, here you go, this is yours now. And they started giggling, and that was the aftercare. And, ah. and that was fine for that person. And that's what that person needed because this person is like, I'm not a cuddler. I, I literally do not want you to cuddle me. And I was like, okay, that's a bit difficult for me, but let's see what we can do with this. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I also think it's interesting how if a person doesn't have a background of trauma and they talk about violence being intimate, no flags go up for people. But the second you introduce that there's some tie-in to trauma or violence or abuse, all of a sudden it's almost like, some fra some fraction of the population doesn't think you should have access to what you want to do anymore. And I have no time for that. I know. I'm, I'm kind of frustrated about it because it's like, just because there is some tie-in doesn't mean that people shouldn't have access. Like, these activities should be accessible to people. Like, this should be for anyone consenting to do these things. Yeah, and and I I think sectioning off people with trauma and being like, people with trauma aren't allowed to do X, Y, Z, or they're only allowed to do it when they've done a, like a certain amount of therapy or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I'm like, 
Sometimes, though, you just need to access what gets you through and what gets you feeling good. Yes. Right? Um, and, yeah, like, it's it can be incredibly unjust to basically deny people with trauma pleasure. Yeah. And, and relief. Mm-hmm. And release. Yeah. And connection catharsis yeah any number of things like the the way that a person might best understand forming connection it's like ultimately people deserve to be connected i think if they want to be yeah definitely and and i think something that's come out of the me too movement is a revelation of how many people have trauma and Right, right i'm not just talking about the percentage of people who have been sexually assaulted by however you define that. Yeah. I am talking about the fact that anyone who is assigned a female at birth and people who come to identify as female are subject to so much sexual harm, right? So cis women, trans women, non-binary people who are Mm -hmm. perceived as somehow female there's so much harm and the the constant threat of harm is so oppressive and like there's i've been i'm many years away from experiencing like an incident but the thing that bears down on me is not so much the incidents themselves in my past it's this idea and expectation that another one could happen to me at any time and i'm like that's the stuff that makes it hard to get out of bed in the morning yeah so when we talk about all of this harm that's floating around, it it's kind of like, basically, I'm like, I dare you to go find non-traumatized people in the BDSM world, right? Like, and, well, and, and in the vanilla world, in the world sure. in general, right? Sure. It's Yeah, without building any stigma about folks in BDSM, I think they're probably as traumatized as any person in the regular world. And it's regular world, whatever that means, in the <laughs> yeah. world at large. Whoever that is. <laughs> but you're right. There's an ins- there's just a very large amount of trauma just in and around humans and the way we interact. And I'm super interested in, in doing more work myself in um, being an accountability coach and mm. helping sort of promote healing and restoration in community rather than um, punishment and restitution in community, which tends to be the popular mode. And when people don't accept whatever punitive measures survivors deem appropriate, it's it's immediate exclusion. And mm-hmm. sometimes that can be necessary. Like, sometimes that's not a bad thing. However, yeah. I'm, I'm definitely a fan of reintegrative mediation, finding a way to help people become less harmful, whether they're reintegrating in this community that they did, that they um, had harmful interactions in, or whether they're simply going to a different community because they're going to go to a different community whether a survivor wants them to or not. Like, people are still people, and they still should, you know, deserve some form of connection. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, they're able to do that in a way that's not super harmful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and and also getting away from, from corporal punishment, right? Whether it's yeah. physical or social, because that doesn't necessarily heal people. Right. Right? Like, is this actually going to make... Like, is this going to do something positive for the survivor? Yeah. You know, like all these questions. Right. That vengeance sort of punitive justice kind of way to go about things. Yeah. 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 It's the whole an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. Not to quote Gandhi, I think. Yeah. Which I'm, yeah. I'm pretty sure we're in a conversation about BDSM right now. Quoting, <laughs> I'm quoting Gandhi. Right. All right. Oh, I can, yeah. I can go with that. Nonviolence. <laughs> 
don't know. There's there's some stuff about Gandhi, right? Like there definitely is stuff about Gandhi. There is stuff about Gandhi. <laughs> Although we don't have to like go into that. Ironically, I think I think Gandhi is much more of a controversial figure when I was living in India. Mm. There was much more of a like, oh Gandhi, what a mixed bag. Versus like over here, there's like just this idea of like Mahatma Gandhi. He did he did so many good things. And and like what were those things? Oh I don't know. Like freed India, I guess. Like it's it's so interesting how there's like the most superficial understanding of Gandhi in, in like, at least among my like white friends in Canada, usually, but right. you already seem to be more knowledgeable than my average friend about, <laughs> about Gandhi. So yeah, I've, I've read a few web articles, basically. That's about <laughs> as far as it goes. Let's be honest. You're like, I read a Jezebel article. <laughs> I don't think it was Jezebel, but it was definitely, yeah, it was definitely in that vein. A couple things came across my news feed where I was like, Oh Yeah maybe not maybe not the maybe not the quite. shining paragon that some people think yeah yeah for sure and, and it kind of makes sense that the communities in proximity with him would be like yeah we we know a bit about this gandhi guy yeah, yeah. and i mean good things and bad things right mm-hmm. like yeah. like any any visible public figure usually definitely what bad things do you not know about me <laughs> I actually haven't heard anything bad about you. I'm still waiting. I'm, th- I'm sure. I'm sure there will be things, right? Because right. I think we all have blind spots. Oh, yeah. It's it's one of those things of no matter how hard you work at being, like, the very best you that you can be and at leaving people better than you found them, there is still shit that's going to come out in, like, eight years of someone being like, you did this thing, and it really fucking sucked for me. And yeah. the the funny thing is there's such a a balance where some folks are going to be like you're instantly guilty um and other folks will be like well you're automatically innocent until someone can prove you guilty and it's like you know there can be multiple versions of of events and it's totally possible that you can have the intention of not doing something super fucking harmful to someone and still have the impact of someone saying i had a non-consensual experience with you yeah and if you look at consent as a subjective internal experience of agreement, mm. then it's really easy all of a sudden to talk about it, talk about it in a way where a person's like, that didn't feel consensual to me. And you're like, wow, that really fucking is awful. Like, yeah. it would never be my intention to give someone the experience of non-consent. But like, regardless of my intentions, that doesn't fucking change how it lands for someone. Yeah. And also there's there's more talk about like toxic dynamics and toxic relationships. Oof. And... There can definitely be things where there's a number of my relationships where I'm like, yes, I would characterize what happened as consensual. That doesn't mean it was healthy. Absolutely. Um, And so if someone was like asking for a reference or something from me about certain people, it might be like, this is the like, this was the positive aspects of our relationships. This was the negative stuff. This is where I feel like my stuff played into the unhealthy dynamic Mm. and maybe these are the things you should be aware of or watch out for with this individual You should put this on your radar (laughs) yeah 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 which is that's a more complex way of giving references than simply like i had a good time versus this person violated my consent right yeah again fighting those binaries yeah and I find references do tend to typically go one of one of those two ways. Although I'm meeting more and more humans who are much less binary about how they talk about people. Nice. That that's really good. Like recently I had the occasion where I told some someone was asking me for references and I was like 
you can speak to my ex. We broke up on pretty rough terms. Things didn't work out super well, but I still think that's a valuable person for you to talk to because that's the most relevant for the type of experience we're talking about building together. Sure. Yeah, um, which was a scary thing to do. It was didn't feel like the like socially safest thing to do either because I had no idea how this would, person would react. react to being approached. Um, but at the same time, I was like, if we're going to build an honest picture, this is, this is what my past looks like. Yeah. These are relationships I've been in. Here's what I've learned from it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. I respect that. <laughs> I also wanted to mention that BDSM is not therapy. It can be therapeutic. Yes. But since we're talking about, um, how sometimes people that are just working on their mental wellness sometimes just need like what's going to get them through right now. Sometimes BDSM can be therapeutic, but it's not a substitute for going to counseling, for doing the work. No, it definitely isn't. There's a lot of reasons why it's really important to make that distinction. What I like about therapy and counseling is basically you have formed a relationship with a person where there's a clear transaction about, like, I get your time and expertise, either I or my insurance company gives you the money, and we have these goals that we're setting together about what's going to happen and how that's going to happen. Um, that's really harder to do when you're operating like socially or sexually or romantically. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Also people like people in the BDSM world, like don't have certain training or, yep. you know, or credentials. That's the word I was looking for. They don't have the training or credentials. And if they do, chances are they don't want to do it in their social life. They're like, no, if you want that access to that part of me, you have to pay me. Yeah, I have like, I went through all of the hoops and <laughs> did all the jumping to yeah. get the credentials to be able to charge for this. And it's exhausting. And I do this for work. And I think of it as work. Yeah. Not to mention the oppressive dynamic that femmes get asked to do emotional labor more often than non-femmes. It, it is true. We are seen as gentle and understanding and available. And <laughs> <laughs> People who have those ideas, I, I, I'm always kind of like, have you ever seen two femme leather dykes go at each other in a scene before? Because I think none of those, I mean, not necessarily. Yeah. I don't want to stereotype all femme leather dykes, but. There, there is a, you know, like. There's, I, a, there's a reputation. Yeah, I remember one of the times I played with a, another femme leather dyke and she ended up like punching me into a concrete floor as I lay there sobbing. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's. That is exactly what I'm talking about. I, I see stuff like that and go, ooh. And I'm just like, wow, that is really intense. Well, I think it's, it's something that um, one of my newer play partners noticed with me is that when I'm topping, like, she's like, you're so angry. And it's like, actually, I'm always angry. It's just right now I get to do something. Like, I get to funnel that anger right. into this form of violence that y we have both agreed to, that you have specifically asked me for. Right. You know, it's, it's kind of like you are finally, a after having so much weight put upon you and expectations to be nice and pleasant, you are suddenly given permission and specifically requested for an ass kicking. And you're like, <laughs> all right, like, here we go. Let me get my shit kicker boots on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is that, there is that relief of being seen as well for just like, what you experience and who you are so mm -hmm. much of the time and being able to just be public and seen that can be so healing. Yeah. 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 I mean, I do, I do do a fair amount of nurturing in when I do BDSM, but it's like 
that's because I honestly like you. Like, I do it before and after the ass kicking because yeah. I, I only do these things with people I care about. And then I want to nurture. It's like I kind of I've started flagging mommy. Um, <laughs> but it's kind of like but this is it's close to how my um, my leather mama is, is that, you know, she will take me down and like make me cry and then scrape the tears off with her knife <laughs> and then she put, built me back up together so I can go back out into the world again. Um, and so that's that's kind of a model I'm taking forward. So because... when you say flagging mommy, do you want to just touch a little more on what that means? Okay. Do you want me to break down what flagging is and then mommy? Okay. Let's do that. Um, so flagging is a covert way of signaling your interest or identity. It developed in the 1950s bar culture when homosexuality was still criminalized. So one of the more popular ways was the hanky code where people would put a specific colored handkerchief in a pocket and left usually meant top or dominant. Yep. Right means, thank you. Sometimes I get my left and my right mixed up, so I'm trying to be accurate. Left means bottom or submissive, and different colors have different meanings. Right means bottom or submissive. Yes, Because right. the bottom's always right. Yes, Is right. Is that the way that works? Oh, well. Now I feel like I, I have to I, look it up, because I'm like, I'm a 50-50, but one side is, is the giver and one side is the receiver. One side is the giver and one side is the receiver. And I've I've heard a lot of strange reasons about why it's left versus right. I don't know. Um, so Google the hanky code. It'll give you a whole bunch of information. I, I don't feel we have time to run through all the colors right now. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of them. There are a lot of them. So, so, and so in leather culture, I'm switching to like mommy and daddy is there is kind of, we use archetypes from the vanilla world to express certain things about our identity. And a mommy or daddy is usually a dominant type person who is also nurturing and caring. And then you break that into genders and the genders are not linked to binary sex. I know we probably don't have to say that for a lot of your listeners, but maybe one or two people need to hear that explicitly. Mm -hmm. um, so my leather mama is a femme. Um, yeah, I also have some daddy type people in my life. I, I still feel like I'm sorting out the definition, so I don't want to say fine. anything defi definitive about how that's working for me right now. Mm -hmm. um, and those tend to be more masculine people. So, and and also people who that reson that identity resonates with, right? Yeah. Like people have started calling me boot black mommy because they notice like the nurturing and I might have to take you out to the back alley and show you what's what. Um, <laughs> Mama's going to take care of business. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes mama has to take care of your business, um, which not my favorite, but I'll do it. Um, so, you know, yeah. So that's kind of flagging mommy. Cool. Thank you for explaining that. I just wanted to make sure, because we kind of glossed over it, that we kind of went into it in a little more detail, just for folks that were like, wait, what? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Great. So you've been flagging mommy recently. Yeah. And this relates to your leather mama and how that's being modeled for you. How do you feel about um, other people talking about you as a boot black mommy figure or mommy? It. So it's pretty new. Um, I... 
it's really funny because I identify as feral a lot, mm-hmm. um, which is something we didn't talk about when I when we talked about my identities. But I, especially in leather, I talk about being feral. I talk about kind of not necessarily coming up through a traditional path. I didn't have a lot of mentors or formal mentors um, when I was kind of learning my way in BDSM and leather and who I was and who I wanted to be. And I tend to be a little bit scrappy and a little bit chaotic. And so to have people see me and recognize me and hail me as more of like an elder or like a matriarch or someone who can be a bit respond, like it's a little bit frightening, it's a little bit intimidating. But at the same time, I realize that I'm like, I, I do have quite a bit of experience and I do have a lot of strongly held opinions mm-hmm. and I do have values and ethics and I try to hold them in that in a way that is gentle and compassionate and allows for a lot of people to have variations and be who they are and come from the different places they're coming so I, I think feel like I've grown into it but it's still pretty new mm-hmm. so when you think about boot blacking as a public display of service. I'm, I'm curious how that relates to performance and what needs get met for you related to like being seen performing well. Mm. So there's definitely an aspect of performance for me in boot blacking. And the aspect of performance for me is the fact that my boot blacking reflects who I am as a person Mm-hmm. But when I'm boot blacking in public, I am careful to hold back certain aspects of myself that maybe they feel really vulnerable or maybe they feel really intimate mm-hmm. so that those parts are safe mm-hmm. so that I can still have this public persona. It's kind of like Tilly 2.0, Tilly 2.0 boot blacks, whereas the core Tilly is still held and safe inside myself. Um, so when I am performing service publicly, it's really hard because I view service really subjectively. So like, what is, how do you define performing service well? Um, Right, right. I, I think the most important thing is not making a major gaffe, like not doing something that requires fixing someone's boots. That's, that's something I think all boot blacks worry about. Sure is not doing, like, it's really hard to do permanent harm or damage to a boot, which is great, but not doing something where you're like, oh, you'll have to leave these with me while I strip them, and then you'll be wandering around without your boots, and, right, right, like, that's, that's something we want to avoid. I think it's also, I want to be perceived that people leave my stand feeling better. Right. So that the boot blacking no matter what it looked like or how that interaction was in the stand is a positive for the people who seek it out. Mm -hmm. It touches back on leaving people better than you found them almost. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me more about, about identifying as feral. I'm curious to have you dig in. Is that more predator prey style feral? Um, What's really funny is I kind of went into hiding for three years for mental health reasons. And then I came out and everyone's identifying as primal and predator prey. And I'm like, I'm not 
sure what all of that means yet. I haven't right. I haven't dug into how that works really. Um, I definitely like it. Definitely gets to a bit of not quite humanness, right? Like identifying more with like coyotes and raccoons and scavengers so right? it's interesting because the first thing that came to mind was a raccoon that was like sitting on a tank made of like garbage cans that had been like refurbished into a tank and it <laughs> was like give me all of your garbage give me all of your gar- all of your garbage right or like just the the act of going through the garbage and finding the tr- the treasure in the trash right um i'm very much about that kind of ethos and like that even shows up in like how I do my art and a bit of how I relate to people is that I often relate to people who are somewhat marginalized and outsiders and maybe don't necessarily look like how you would like polished. Yeah. Not polished people or people who you don't stereotype as looking like BDSM players or, or like leather. Like one of my play partners was once like, can I wear sweatpants to our play date? (laughs) And I was like, yes, because all we have negotiated for is that I will punch you a lot and I can punch you just fine. If you're wearing sweatpants, that's great. You know? Yeah. I think it's great to talk about that stuff though. It's, Mm -hmm. it's sort of like, so many different needs exist that people get met for some people it is the narrative context or you know the illusion of of a specific thing or it it, it's about the feeling of a power dynamic or power exchange but if all you're negotiating and doing is just like a whole bunch of punching (laughs) then it's like that's then that's fine but but having that conversation is super important because of all the things that get unsaid about like well I, i thought it would be fine to show up in sweatpants like Right. You and didn't for, specify anything about leather or that we were doing any kind of role play. It was just some punching. Yeah, exactly. And for some people, the sweatpants would be like a hard no. Right. Whereas for me, I'm like, depending on what we decide to do and how we decided to do it. Um, I think being feral also speaks to a little bit of wildness and a little bit of chaos. Mm-hmm. Um, because I often go into scenes wanting to experience these intensities right these intense states and for me that involves getting a bit wild and like dropping my business casual and you know getting getting to go really go there and so i i need that to be recognized and and affirmed and i also it's a little bit of a, a warning sign slash screening that if people are turned off by you know, the feral label or the feral idea, then these are probably not my people and we can stop wasting each other's time and both move on. Yeah, and have more filling or or feeding relationships with other people that will just satisfy and meet better needs or meet more needs. Awesome. This has been a really good, like, snapshot (laughs) of Tilly the human. Who, Who is Tilly? Who is, who is Tilly the matriarch in Boot Black. <laughs> yeah. um, in yeah. two years, it will be completely, well, not completely, somewhat different. It will be somewhat different, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm super interested to talk more about service and to get into fear of intimacy, but I think mm-hmm. it might be worth wrapping up and doing that in a different episode. Okay. Do you want to do that? That sounds great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Tilly, for being on Intimate Interactions with me. No problem. Thank you. So how did you like it, Intimates? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimateinteractions or directly on patreon.com slash victorsalmon. 
Both communities are easy to find from IntimatePodcast.com, so what are you waiting for? Go join the free Intimates community and start connecting with others. I'll see you on there. Disclaimer. I apologize if I said something that hit a nerve or played off a hateful idea or stereotype. I'm open to being called in. Chances are, in six months, I'll look back aghast and see something problematic I've since grown from. I'm certainly not perfect, but I am trying to be mindful of the voices I lift up and the perspectives I encourage. You can email feedback to podcast at victorsalmon.com. Thanks for your kindness. Attribution. The tracks I use are published under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The intro track was Lost Souls by Portrayal, and the outro track was Restoration by Uncle Milk. Land Acknowledgement. I apologize first for any pronunciations I might butcher. I wanted to acknowledge that I recorded this podcast on the unceded traditional Coast Salish territories of the Musqueam, Kwantlen, Stazuminus, Stolo, Tsawasan, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Shout out to the Sekwepmek Nation, on whose land I got my degree, considering the Kamloops Indian Residential School closed only in 1996 when I was 10, I have found nothing but unending patience and kindness in the Tekemloopste-Sekwepmek folks with whom I've interacted. Let's never forget genocide in the hope we don't make the same dehumanizing, cruel mistakes again. Thank you.